My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God and today we are looking at Matthew chapter 20 and uh, we are going to be starting at verse 17 today and we're going to be going through to the end of the chapter in verse 34. So let's pick it up where Jesus has told the parable of the kingdom of heaven being like a landowner with a vineyard. And he's, that was his response to Peter when Peter said, listen, we've given up so much for you. What are we going to get in return? And, and Jesus says, listen, <laughs> just because you were the first ones who to follow me doesn't mean that you know the reward that I'm going to give to others is going to be not as good just because you were first. Because in my kingdom and in God, your father's kingdom, uh, the first are often last and the last are first. And then he goes in and explains what that all means. And then we get on to Jesus now moving. This is his last week of his earthly ministry here. Jesus now going up to Jerusalem. Remember in the Bible, whenever you read the words going up to Jerusalem, it actually means the altitude. Jerusalem is that highest point. You are always going up to Jerusalem. When you come to Israel with me, you'll stand in Jerusalem and be able to see uh, all around. It's absolutely amazing. So Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify and the third day he will rise again so they're going up to Jerusalem which is not a surprise to the disciples because even if Jesus hadn't told them that's what he was doing they'd already moved south from Galilee and it was about the time of the Passover and you know they needed to be in Jerusalem by the time of the Passover and Jesus says the son of man will be betrayed so again here's Jesus telling the disciples again talk about thick I mean, how many times did he tell them, I'm going to go, I'm going to be betrayed, they're going to kill me, on the third day I'm going to rise again. (laughs) Yet none of them seemed to remember this on the third day. How many times did he tell them? There was no reaction from the disciples noted here, which I wouldn't have imagined we would have expected some reaction when Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed, because wouldn't they look at each other at that moment and be like betrayed? That means it's by somebody who knows him. We're the ones that know him the best. I wonder if it's one of us. There's, there's no notation that that's what happened. I don't know. Maybe it did, but we don't have any documentation of it. When you think about him being betrayed, Spurgeon said this, The Christ, his wounds are those which he receives in the house of his own friend. Think about that. The people that hurt Jesus the most are the people who are closest to him. It, it's, it often happens to us too, doesn't it? That the people who are closest to you hurt you the most and you're like, oh, particularly when there's betrayal involved. But do you understand that no matter what we go through in life, Jesus always understands even the most intimate of pain that we ever feel being betrayed by those close to us. Jesus totally understands what that feels like. Now, it seems that the disciples just didn't listen to Jesus telling them what he was going to, go through they're they're 
Maybe their expectation was so focused on Jesus being the Messiah, which meant in their mind he was going to establish this amazing political kingdom. And these words that he's speaking are so opposite of what they think he's going to do that it just goes over their heads and they just don't even think about it. Guzik said this, It is often more agonizing to contemplate the painful future than it is to actually live it. Jesus openly acknowledged the suffering and agony that awaited him. Jesus thought about how he would fulfill the will of his father and the future. There was value for him to look at his coming trial and to think and say, I will complete what my father has given me to do and I will obey to the very end, even though he knew he was going to be betrayed. So he says to them, this is what's going to happen going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned to death. Uh, they're going to mock me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to crucify me. And then they're going to, I'm going to rise again. This is very specific about what was going to happen to him. This is him being prophetic about how it was all going to play out. He foretold many of the things over which he had no apparent con- control. Uh, Jesus could have been delivered to the religious authorities without being betrayed. He didn't arrange his own betrayal, but he confidently said it would happen. He said, I'll be condemned to death. Jesus confidently predicted that that, uh, the religious leaders would condemn him to death, but it wasn't something he could plan. He said, I'll be delivered to the Gentiles. Jesus knew that the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, did not have authority to carry out capital punishment, but sometimes they executed men without this ability or with, without this authority. Acts chapter 7, verse 54 to 60. But Jesus was confident that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. And he said, I'll be mocked, I'll be scourged. Jesus predicted these very specific uh, aspects of his coming, coming agony, which he couldn't possibly arrange. They had to be prophetic. Spurgeon said this, they plucked his hair. They smote his cheeks. They spat in his face. Mockery could go no farther. It was cruel, cussing and cutting and cursed scorn. Then he says, I'm going to be crucified. D.A. Carson said, crucifixion was not the only way that criminals were executed under the Romans. But Jesus knew that this was how he would be put to death. Here is the first mention of the mode of Jesus' death and of the Gentiles' part in it. Why? Because only the Romans had the authority to crucify people. So when you look at the whole picture that Jesus is painting here to his disciples about what's going to happen to him, it's talking about being uh, a sufferer at the hands of disloyal friends, a sufferer at the hands of injustice, a sufferer from being deliberately insulted, uh, a, a sufferer of of physical pain inflicted upon him and a sufferer of great humiliation, of being degraded and mocked. And then he says, and on the third day, I'll rise again. This is not something that Jesus at this time had any apparent control over, yet he's telling the disciples, this is how it's going to play out. Okay, let's move on to verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. This is the mother of James and John. And she comes with a request that she thinks is going to make her sons happy. 
And she's asking them for them to have a position of privilege in Jesus' kingdom. She wants prominent positions for them in Jesus' messianic administration that he's going to set up. Now, the promise from verse 28 in Matthew 19 is what actually forms the background to this request. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's told them that they'll have an important part. And now she says, well, I want my two boys to have the most special parts. Okay. The thrones, 12 thrones for the disciples are already assured. So the only thing that was left was who would get which throne? <laughs> so that's why she comes. She comes with a bold request. Verse 22. Jesus, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> and he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Their answer of we are able, uh, I think, comes just a little too quickly. Jesus recognises that they didn't fully understand what he was asking them, but they would eventually. Uh, F.B. Myers says this, uh, These men slept in Gethsemane. They forsook their master when he was arrested, and one of them at least failed him at the cross. We can only follow Christ in his cup and his baptism after we have been endued with the spirit of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit has fulfilled the power that we need in us. So he says, you will indeed drink my cup. Both James and John actually had to be baptized in the suffering as Jesus was, but their cups and their baptism were different. James was the very first martyr among the apostles, and John was the only apostle to not die through martyrdom, the two sons. Not through lack of trying, by the way, because John gave it a good shot. James had to be ready to be the first to die among the disciples, and John had to be ready to live the longest Christian life and have the longest Christian testimony among them. These are the two sons that this mother has talked about. And he says, but listen, it's not mine to give. You're asking me, can I make them sit on my left and right? But it's not mine. It's all about my father. It's always about the will of the father. Even Jesus said that. Jesus here showed remarkable submission coming under the mission of the father. And he he wasn't going to claim that right. He was going to yield it to his father. Spurgeon said this, Jesus comes to do not his own will, but the will of him that sent him. And he so correctly says of his rank in his kingdom, it is not mine to give. How thoroughly did our Lord take a lowly place for our sakes. In this laying aside of authority, he gives a silent rebuke to our self-seeking. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Yeah, (laughs) of course they were. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall be not so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. 
And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. They were displeased, greatly displeased. The other ten disciples mistakenly thought that some kind of unique honour had just been bestowed upon James and John. They didn't know that Jesus could have made the same promise of suffering to come to any of them if they really wanted it. And then Jesus says, yet it shall not be so among you. Their, Their desire for position and status showed that they didn't understand the nature of Jesus in respect to leadership and power. And the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it should be different among the people of God. So he says, yet it shall not be so among you. It's a very stinging rebuke to the manner in which the modern church looks to the world for both its substance and its style. Obviously, the church isn't to operate the same way the world does. Jesus says, yet it shall not be the same among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. The kingdom, in the kingdom, community, status, popularity, money should never be the prerequisites for leadership. Humble service is the great prerequisite, as shown by Jesus' own ministry when he talks about this is how you serve. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, real ministry is done for the benefit of those who are to be ministered to, not for the benefit of the person doing the ministering. Many people are in ministry for what they can receive from their people instead of what they can give to their people. Spurgeon said this, He did not come to get your service, He came to give you his services, not that you might first do him honour, but that he might show you first mercy. So then Jesus says to give his life a ransom for many. The death of Jesus, the giving of his life, purchased, paid the price for the freedom of you and for me. And the idea is that the people, his people, were in bondage as slaves and he paid the price RT France, ransom was most commonly used as the purchase price for freeing slaves. The the Greek word litron, litron, and the preposition anti, A-N-T-I, which means for instead of, literally instead of. They point clearly to the idea of his taking our place. A ransom, William Barclay, is something paid or given to liberate a man from a situation from which it is impossible to free himself. So then we get to the last few verses here. Matthew 20, verse 29. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed them. Remember, they're on their way up to Jerusalem. So now they're on the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem. As they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed them, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. 
Why? They knew that this might be their last time to meet Jesus. They had a desperation appropriate for those who know that today is the day for salvation. Why do not more people have this same desperation? Have mercy on us today, O Lord, Son of David. Uh, France, it is the end of the account of Jesus' itinerant ministry and its setting as they went out from Jericho points forward to the next town on the road, which is Jerusalem. Now, when you come with me to, to Israel, we will go to a place called Wadi Kilt and it's an overlook and you can look down and see Jericho and then you can look up and you can see Jerusalem and you can see the winding road from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. It's where the story of the Good Samaritan takes place. And here, appropriately, they yell and scream and cry out, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. The... the the earnest desire in these men was incredible. They had a desperation to be healed and they ignored the crowd. And when people said, be quiet, they said, I don't care. I genuinely don't care what you think. You're telling me to be quiet? I'm going to be louder. That's what they did. They cried out all the more. They said, Lord, son of David. In their desperation, they glorified Jesus with his title the son of David, they gave him the full honour that he deserved. Verse 32, and Jesus stood still. Imagine that, he stood still. And he called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Nothing could stop Jesus on his journey up to Jerusalem, but he stood still. What for? Because there was a persistent plea of mercy from those upon whom Jesus would have compassion. And he says very simply, what do you want me to do for you? It's a very simple question. And God has not stopped asking that question of you and for me. Sometimes we go without when God wants to give us something. And the reason we go without is because we don't ask. James 4, we do not have because we do not ask. Jesus asked this question with the full knowledge that they were blind. It wasn't a trick question. He wasn't trying to, he, it wasn't like he couldn't see they were blind, but he just said, that they, they said, have mercy on us, son David. He turns around, stood still, looked at them and says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? He knew what they needed. He knew what they wanted, but God still wants us to tell him our needs as a constant expression of our trust, our reliance on him. It's not to trick us. It's not like, well, okay. Tell me what you want. It's, like, it's not like I don't know. No, he wants us to express our reliance, our need upon him by telling him what we need. It's, that's why, you you know, in relationships, in w earthly relationships, we say to other people, well, they should just know what I need. In, in you know, even in marriages, you know, people, well, he should just know. He should just know. Well, it just doesn't work like that with God because even when God knows he asks us to express what it is that we need as a determination of our reliance upon him for that need. So what happens? He heals them and immediately they follow him. What an incredible day. Not only were these men healed, they also followed the one who did incredibly great and wonderful things for them. So what's our observation today? Jesus knew how he would die. He told the disciples and they never heard what he told them would happen, that he would pay the price, he would 
be the ransom. How many things has Jesus told us in his word that we had not heard? How many things has he told you and you haven't heard them? They're in the Bible. You've read the verse and you and for whatever reason you've just looked over it or you think it's not for you. How, how many? Take a stock and understand that all the promises in here are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So every promise that's in here is for you to hear. Okay? So start living like it. Start asking God. You have not because you ask not. So let's ask. Now, we get a different answer. Okay, I'm okay. I'm happy to submit to the will of the Father. If he doesn't want to answer my prayer a certain way, he wants to do it, I don't mind. But I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. We, we need to ask. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for people today watching this. I pray, Lord, they'd be encouraged. They would know, Lord, that there, there are things in your word that maybe they just haven't heard and they haven't, they haven't applied them to their lives. They don't believe they're for them. I pray they get a fresh revelation today that those things are for them, that Jesus, you died for them, and the God that you want them to ask. You have not because you ask. I pray that they would ask and understand that Jesus paid the price for all the promises of God to be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.